Welcome to the Best of St. Joseph Radio, a program that for more than 30 years has sought out eloquent speakers throughout the world to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. People who seek to put Christ first in their lives, living the Father's will, witnessing to His grace, love, and forgiveness. Now with the aid of technology, we are able to reach the four corners of the world with the gospel message, where Christ Himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. Brothers and sisters, sit back, relax, and open your ears and heart to the good news on the best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Today's presenter comes to us from Fall River, Massachusetts. Father Roger Landry was ordained a priest of the Diocese of Fall River in 1999 after receiving a biology degree from Harvard College and having studied for the priesthood in Maryland, Toronto, and Rome. After his ordination, Father returned to Rome to complete his graduate work in moral theology and bioethics. And now, Father Roger Landry. This talk is entitled Theological Andrology, What It Means to Be a Real Man Within a Christian Perspective. What we're going to try to focus on here is what it means to be a man in the restricted sense, a male, from God's point of view. Over the past few decades, for several reasons, boys and men have been suffering from an identity crisis, which is having an impact on all society. And we see the consequences within the church, too, which is seen a great decrease in male-oriented groups like the Holy Name Society and the St. Vincent of Paul Society. And so within this larger context, it's somewhat urgent to return to the question, what does it mean to be a man from God's perspective? What is man's vocation? For the sake of this talk, I'm going to use the term man in the restricted sense, meaning male human beings, what would be signified by ver in Latin or andros in Greek. That's how we get the title theological andrology. What does it mean to be a male from God's point of view. And there are a lot of competing answers and models on the market today of what it means to be a man. On the one hand, from an exaggerated hyper-testosterone form of machismo, to, on the other, a weak, unassertive, supine fear of women, and then to everything else in between. But God, who created the human person in his own likeness, male and female, had something in mind with this original differentiation between Adam and Eve. So to discuss the question of what it means to be a man, especially from God's point of view, we need to go back to the beginning, to man's origin and his destiny. That's what we're going to try to do during the time we have. This talk will be divided into three parts. The first, what is man's vocation? And is man's vocation distinct from woman's vocation? Second question, or second part, will be two practical illustrations of authentic masculine virtues from a Christian perspective, to kind of see what it means to be a man in practice. And then the third, we'll discuss contemporary challenges to the cultivation of real Christian men. So let's jump right in. What is man's vocation? Man's vocation is inserted within the vocation of the human person, and the vocation of every human person is to love. God is love, St. John tells us in his first letter, and as we read in the first book of the Bible, we're made in God's image and likeness. Therefore, for us to be fully whom God created us to be, to be most like God, most human, we need to love the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is precisely a communion of persons in love. 
And the Trinity created man and woman also to be a communion of persons in love, modeling the Trinity. And when we look at the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and Eve, we observe several salient items. As Pope John Paul II so beautifully describes in his catechesis on the theology of the body, Adam was created free from all sin. He named all the creation. He had God all to himself in the garden, was perfectly in the state of grace. All of creation was ordered to him. He was perfectly ordered to God. He seemed to have it all, but he lacked something crucial. He lacked real human love, and he was lonely. God realized that it was not good for man to be alone, so he created Eve. He took her out of Adam's side to symbolize the equality between the two of them, that they were meant to stand side by side in front of God. And finally, when Adam saw Eve, he was able to rejoice. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And they were to become one flesh. Eve's vocation in the ultimate sense was to overcome Adam's existential loneliness in original solitude and teach him how to love, how to love another, precisely her. And through that analogy of love, how to love himself, and most importantly, how to love God. Adam's vocation correlatively was to help Eve learn how to love. The original difference between man and woman, the reason why God didn't create two men to remove Adam's loneliness, but created somebody equal in dignity but complementary, was to insert both in this mystery of love. From the first man and first woman to every man and woman alive today, the original differentiation between man and woman is meant to help us learn how to love. But this raises the question of what real love is. Love is not a warm feeling of attraction on our insides, but is something far deeper. When we want to get right to the heart of love, Christ, who is our teacher, teaches us what true love is during the Last Supper and put that truth into action the following day when he assumed his cross. No one has any greater love, he told us during the Last Supper, than to lay down his life for another. Real love is not a feeling inside. It's not an attraction. It's a gift of oneself to another, a choice to sacrifice one's own interests, desires, and even life for the sake of another. Pope John Paul II in his catechesis on the theology of the body says just this, that true love is the gift of oneself to another. Mutual love is an exchange of selves. One gives of himself to another, the other receives that gift of self and gives him or herself back in return. And married love is an exclusive exchange of selves, blessed by God for life. This true love, this gift of oneself to another, also brings with it something else. It implies a responsibility for the other for whom one is sacrificing in giving. Love coexists with responsibility. As the future Pope John Paul II wrote in 1960 in his very influential book, which he authored while a priest and as a young bishop, called Love and Responsibility. And the end is crucial. Without real responsibility for those we love, there can be no authentic love. Love without responsibility for the other's good is not love at all. So this vocation of man, is it different from the vocation of woman? Or is this vocation of love identical in the two? The vocation of man and woman is to love, to give of themselves to another, and to help others learn how to love. But in fact, they do that differently in accord with their original differentiation. There's a complementarity in the very way they love. The patriarch of Venice... Angelo Scola was a longtime head of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome. 
He pointed out that men and women do experience and carry out this vocation of love differently. Men, in giving of themselves, receive love in return, he said. They receive by giving. Women, on the other hand, in receiving love, give love in return. Women give by receiving. Men receive by giving. This truth, Angelo Scola used to teach, is shown physiologically in the the design of the human act of making love. A woman makes love and gives of herself by receiving the gift of man within her. A man makes love and receives love by giving of himself physically to the woman. This argument, though, goes beyond just physiological complementarity. But this original differentiation in loving is also true psychologically and spiritually. Man, in order to receive love, needs to be allowed to give love. That's one of the reasons for the creation of Eve. For Adam to learn how to love, he needed somebody to give of himself to, so that in giving himself he could receive love back. Women must be humble enough to receive these gifts of men. Woman needs to be allowed to receive in order to be able best to give love. And man needs to allow the woman to receive him, his day, etc. We can see this in human experience. Why men oftentimes can get so frustrated when a woman on a date wants them to go Dutch. A man, in order to grow in love, needs to give of himself, and a woman needs to be able and humble enough to receive that gift in response. And man needs to realize that a woman needs to receive his own life inside in order to be able to give love back. One of the great frustrations that young married couples have is when the husband, for example, comes home from work and the woman wants to find out how his day was. The last thing he wants to talk about is what what was going on at work. But in order for her to be able to love fully, she needs to receive this gift of the man's whole life, not just his sexuality, but his entire personality, his entire journey in this life within, because in receiving, she's able to give love back. Women and men are meant to help each other learn how to love by this constant process, this constant complementary process of giving and receiving of the gift of self in an ever-ascending spiral so that they might become a communion of persons in love and enter much more into the mystery of what it means to be human and in the mystery of how God made man and woman. These truths about human love in general and masculine love in particular may be very beautiful but I think they'll probably go over most of our heads. We need to make this teaching much more practical. And so I'd like to give two illustrations of how a man is called to love as a man, giving of himself to another and receiving so much in return by this self-gift. The first example I'd like to discuss is the example given to us by St. Joseph and the second by a soldier. First, we turn to St. Joseph. St. Joseph taught Jesus what it meant to be a man according to his human nature. And so he is a great teacher for us as well. His holy, masculine, virtuous life could be summarized under four characteristic virtues. The first is fatherhood, and fatherhood involves three elements. First, St. Joseph was a protector. He protected Mary in her reputation, willing to suffer himself even a little bit of embarrassment, divorcing her quietly rather than allowing her to be stoned as the Mosaic law allowed. And he protected her at other moments of her life as well, especially when Herod 
was filled with a jealous rage. But Joseph was also a protector of Jesus. He gave up his livelihood as a carpenter to take him into Egypt in order to save his life. Joseph was always a protector, and now he's the protector and guardian of the church. Joseph showed his fatherhood as well in being a provider. As a carpenter, he provided for the Holy Family. And thirdly, Joseph's fatherhood shows specifically he was the chaste guardian of the virgin, but he loved fully. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus could tell us that in heaven, there's no longer giving and taking in marriage. There'll be love in heaven because heaven is the fulfillment of love. And Joseph showed us the real pinnacle to which human love points in his own chaste love of the Blessed Mother. So fatherhood, the first of the four characteristic virtues of a man, shows first to be a protector, second to be a provider, and then third that it's pointed toward real love and not just genital sexuality. The second of the four characteristic virtues that Joseph teaches all men is obedience. Three times St. Joseph obeyed God through his angel. The first time, to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Second time, after Herod was filled with that jealous rage, to go immediately and flee with Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And then a third time, while in Egypt, after Herod the Great died, to return. Even though Joseph could have easily deconstructed the dreams and doubted God's command, he didn't. He obeyed them immediately. Even though something, let's be honest, like the virginal conception of the Lord would have exceeded anyone's ability to comprehend naturally and could have been accepted only on the basis of an obedient faith. He doesn't see obeying God as incompatible with his manliness, but obviously as a great part of it. He does not see God's omnipotence as a threat because real manliness doesn't mean you have to be always in control. The third characteristic manly virtue that Joseph shows us all is that men let their actions speak louder than words. St. Joseph never says a word in sacred scripture, yet his actions are remembered to this day. We learn from speech studiers and experts that the vast majority of communication, even up to 80%, is nonverbal. And Joseph communicated his great love and integrity in these ways, such that the church, down to our own day, hears his message loudly and clearly. He was not only an idle listener, but a doer of the word of God. As St. James says, we're all called to be in his letter. That's the third characteristic virtue that he shows us. And the fourth is he manifested a deep love and devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who helped him grow as a man of God. She helped him grow in the capacity to give of himself to God in love. And anyone who wants to become a real man of God needs to follow his example and cultivate in himself this great love and devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So St. Joseph teaches us these four characteristic virtues, fatherhood, as a protector, provider, and a real lover that is not reduced to genital sexuality. Obedience to God. Someone who speaks more by his actions than by his words. Puts into body language the deep things that move him. 
and forth a deep love and devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is easily translated in the life of a real man of God into a deep love and devotion to women in general and for anybody who is married to his wife and his daughters and anyone who is married to the church as a priest to that bride. The second set of virtues from which we can take practical traits of what it means to be a real man comes from what it means to be a good soldier. We'll see the theological relevance of all these virtues in just a second. Just ask you to bear with me as we go through some of these traits of a good soldier, and I'll show you, at least I hope, why this needs to be capable of being said about every man of God. The typical traits of a good soldier, especially one fit for battle, are the following. First, he's willing to die for others to protect them. He's willing to fight for what he believes in. He follows the chain of command and doesn't consider it a threat. He's dutiful even when heroism is required. He's loyal to others and to principles. He sees sacrifice as an opportunity to show his character, as an opportunity to demonstrate love. His actions generally speak louder than words. He can be tender and compassionate without being soft, and he's courageous. The theological relevance of each of these can be seen readily because everything said about a good soldier can be said without a stretch about Christ. Christ was willing to die for others, namely for us, for you and me. He was willing to fight for what he believes in, as he showed time and again in his disputations with the Pharisees. He ultimately believed in God's love and acted upon it until death on a cross. He followed the divine chain of command and didn't consider it a threat. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was dutiful, even when heroism was required, as when he willingly laid down his life out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us. He was loyal to his disciples, never abandoning them despite their abandoning him. He was never disloyal to the Israelites despite the many times they broke God's covenant. Jesus saw sacrifice as an opportunity to show his character, as an opportunity to demonstrate love. No one has greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus showed the depth of the character of God, the depth of God's love on Good Friday when he put those words into action. Next is that actions generally speak much louder than words. The greatest homily Jesus ever gave was not the Sermon of the Mount, as beautiful and as crucial as that is to living out the Christian life and receiving the gift of happiness Jesus died to give us. The greatest homily Jesus ever gave was when he mounted his pulpit for the last time the pulpit of the cross, and said only seven words. But the message he gave from the cross speaks louder than all the books of sacred writ together. Jesus was tender and compassionate without being soft. He was meek and humble of heart, caring for the woman caught in adultery, having pity on the crowds, having particular pity on widows and orphans and sinners and children. This same meek and humble Savior, was also capable of driving money changers from the temple with a whip, calling Pharisees to their face, whitewashed sepulchers, and pronouncing himself the stronger man 
who would bind the devil and shear his spoils. No modern trash talker could ever come anywhere close to that. But Jesus wasn't talking trash because he backed it all up. And lastly, Jesus showed what real courage means. Courage is not being unafraid. Courage is precisely doing what ought to be done despite one's fears, as Jesus showed time and again, but especially during his agony and on Good Friday. The real Christian man will share these virtues because they were virtues of Christ and the virtues of the man St. Joseph to whom God the Father entrusted teaching his only begotten son how to be a man. And now we turn to the third part, the contemporary challenges to the formation of masculine men. Cultures have a tremendous impact in the formation of people's personalities. And contemporary Western culture is making it more and more difficult for men to develop the virtues and characteristics of a real man in Christ. We can focus above all on three contemporary challenges after describing how the perversion of masculinity and of masculine ideals occurs. The perversion of masculinity. If authentic masculinity shows itself, as we've talked about, in the true gift of self, then the perversion of masculinity is when man becomes a taker rather than a giver. Pope John Paul II's discussion of lust in his Theology of the Body, those beautiful catechesis given on Wednesdays between 1979 and 1984, shows how lust does this to a man, perverts his authentic masculinity, and changes his entire approach to life. Rather than seeing others as invitations to give of himself in love, as subjects worthy of love, the lustful man begins to see others as objects to use from whom he can take for his own benefit or gratification. Love, as Carol Wojtyla, the future pope, wrote in Love and Responsibility, always goes with responsibility. And the perversion of masculinity often is a result of a dissociation of what is understood to be love in this authentic responsibility. Each of the three contemporary challenges I'll mention attacks the formation of this responsible love in a man. The first challenge, our culture no longer cultivates real responsibility in young men. In former days, boys were trained in responsibility, which in turn trained them in authentic love. By the time they were 8 or 10, they were given real responsibility on the farm, and the family was depending upon them to do it well for the family's well-being or even survival. Higher mortality rates among their fathers often made young boys precociously the men of the house. In non-agrarian households, oftentimes they were out being apprenticed or working at very early ages to support their birth families. Older boys were generally given supervisory roles in the protection and discipline of younger siblings. They were marrying much younger and were called upon to provide for a family at a much younger age. All of these factors, which counted on a young man's being trustworthy and responsible at a very young age, helped them to learn how to give of themselves in responsible, dutiful love of others. Today, this education and responsibility is not being cultivated as it once was. One of the consequences of a culture in which many more people are going on to college and to advanced degrees is that for many, 
real direct responsibility is deferred. Families are much smaller today, so young boys often have much less responsibility for siblings than in past days. Moreover, with smaller families, the odds that a child will be spoiled increases. Marriage is being delayed until, in many circumstances, the late 20s and 30s, and the responsibility associated with marriage, which oftentimes teaches a man how to love, are put off beyond the real formative years. I remember hearing on the radio about a month ago a talk show in which this question about male responsibility came up. And there was a father who identified himself as 32 years old. And he said the first time he really felt responsible in life was when, as a 29-year-old, he heard his infant child crying about 2 o'clock in the morning. That this man, who had already been married for a couple years, who had already gone on to advanced degrees, he had never felt responsible until his child needed him in the early hours of the morning one night. We need to look seriously at that and ask ourselves, what are we doing in the formation of responsibility in young men so that they can be formed how to love, so that they can be formed in what it really means to be a man capable of giving himself out of love to others. And we consciously have to help young boys become more responsible, more masculine, by giving them some real responsibility. Overprotective parents who do not cultivate trust and responsibility in their children can do incalculable, incalculable harm, but especially to young boys. Chores should be given not just as a means to accumulate allowances or to have some help around the house, but to take genuine responsibility for the good of the home. Studies can be done with tangible reference to the responsibilities that young men will have later as husbands, as fathers, as doctors or lawyers or professionals or carpenters, etc. What they are doing now can be more explicitly done with responsible love for others who will come later. The second challenge from our culture comes from a culture of irresponsibility and sexuality. Rather than a means to encourage men to become responsible and truly loving, the contemporary culture of sexuality encourages men to become irresponsible takers rather than givers. Young people are helped by this culture to become consumers of others for the sake of pleasure rather than responsible lovers, caring for and treasuring the other's gifts and never trying to take advantage of others. Abortion is one example of the evil fruits of this culture. Rather than force men, young or old, to take responsibility for the children they father, abortion, especially among teenagers and collegians, trains them in irresponsibility, even to the point of allowing and encouraging the killing of one's own offspring to save one from the consequences and duties that flow from sexual activity. Abortion just continues the irresponsibility that probably had been involved in sexual relations that led to the conception of a child. And abortion does not only tremendous damage to the child conceived, it not only harms the woman tremendously, but it does great damage to a man in cultivating this culture of irresponsibility. Moreover, the contraceptive mentality in our culture encourages young men and women to divorce sexuality from the natural consequences and responsibilities of sexual activity. This allows men in particular much more easily to use women in sexuality 
rather than to learn how to love through sexuality linked to genuine responsibility, which can only be found in a loving marriage. To be responsible, sex must be bound to a loving marriage and open to children. Otherwise, it's way too easily prone to using the other for pleasure. The gift of self in making love must be total. That's why I always encourage young people who come to me to be married who might be cheating on their vocation to be chased with each other during their engagement. That ultimately, marriage is associated with giving of yourself wholly and entirely to each other, exchanging bank accounts, exchanging futures, exchanging everything. And if one in making love is not capable of exchanging bank accounts, exchanging livelihoods, or engaging somebody in this whole life project that will end only at death rather than perhaps tomorrow whenever anybody feels like they no longer have that attraction, then it's not real love because love is this total gift of oneself to another. And body language expressed in the act of making love is supposed to ratify what is said in words when two people come before God to be married. I take you wholly and entirely for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. And if one's not capable of doing that in the body language of love, then that body language is a lie and will only hurt the people who are associated in it. The third contemporary challenge to the cultivation of authentic masculinity is an increased effeminacy in our culture. Effeminacy is not the same thing as femininity, Femininity describes genuinely woman, womanly traits in a woman. Femininity in itself is a full development of the female personality. And women can be feminine without being effeminate. Effeminacy is a perversion of femininity. It comes from the Latin word molitia, which literally means softness. It involves a general passivity in life, as well as a lack of perseverance, especially before struggles and difficulties. Mary was not effeminate, sticking with Jesus all the way to the cross, nor was Mary Magdalene. St. Thomas Aquinas includes effeminacy under the vices opposed to perseverance. He says that it can be caused either by custom when a man becomes so accustomed to enjoying pleasures that it makes it much more difficult for him to endure their absence, or by natural disposition, when a man is less persevering because of a frailty and temperament. And we see both in our culture. Some men are effeminate because they're just so used to being spoiled by things or by others, or some can be more naturally effeminate, which you see even in the youngest boys. The problem in our culture especially since the dawn of the era of political correctness a little over a decade ago, is that our culture has been promoting these virtues of effeminacy and doing great harm to boys. Authentically masculine virtues, like those of soldiers, are often considered vices or at least weaknesses today. They're considered threats in a young boy. Masculine culture itself has been attacked as by definition discriminatory or demeaning of women. Smashing the patriarchy has led to a diminution of the appreciation of real masculinity. Even women who are among the leaders of a particular segment of the feminist movement are trying to adopt the worst traits of masculinity as their own. 
masculinity philandering and promiscuity as their own, having sex without consequences, the types of vices in a man that would allow the man to find in work his real meaning rather than another's. All of these things have led to the diminution of the appreciation of masculinity. The discipline of children has become far more effeminate. Timeouts do not affect boys the same way that they would affect girls and oftentimes can lead to neuroses in boys over the course of time. When, when a spanking is done for a particular reason, the pain of that spanking wears off and a boy is able to forget it and get on after he continues to fake a little bit extra tear so that the next spank won't come. A timeout, sending a boy over to the corner to be this anger alive rather than let it be shown physically, rather than let it come out physically, can oftentimes, even from well-intentioned parents listening to so-called experts, not really help the boy learn from his mistake and not really help him grow. Moreover, our educational systems have become far less demanding, far softer, in order to make room for those who find genuine achievement difficult. We've become, in certain segments of society, more concerned with self-esteem than results. This is one of the reasons why what President Bush has been saying about trying to bring back standards to education will also have spiritual consequences. Competition has become, in certain circles, a pejorative term. Sports, in many segments of society, now stress everybody plays philosophies rather than winning. Now, while Yogi Berra was wrong and winning is not everything or the only thing, striving to win is crucially important because if it doesn't matter whether one wins or loses, why have goals? Why strive? This is particularly important, again, for boys. Lastly, genuine tough love on the part of parents and educators is rarer today. The younger generation of parents and teachers seems more prone to wanting to have their children like them than to teach, train, and discipline them. The last factor in the growing effeminacy in our culture comes from the pro-homosexuality movement. While homosexuality and effeminacy are distinct, they're often found together in individuals and in the larger pro-homosexuality movement. Homosexual activity is based on the principle of harmonious egoisms. To take a term from Carol Wojtyla's Love and Responsibility, harmonious egoisms, two eyes working together rather than a you and an I meeting in some type of mutual exchange of selves. And as the principle of love and responsibility shows, Carol Wojtyla wrote very clearly that using somebody is the opposite of loving somebody because you're going to corrode whatever love might already be there because you're treating the other as an object for your own gratification rather than a subject, the only worthy response to whom is love. As what happens when two people give of themselves and receive the other self-gift within the context of a public commitment that will protect the fragile gift of that mutual self-donation, which happens in marriage. Homosexual sexual activity is geared toward the mutual pleasure each one may derive or give. This homosexual model of sexual activity harmonious egoisms, and mutual utilitarianism is found to some degree in all premarital sexual activity, in extramarital sexual activity, and in contraceptive sex within marriage, all of which impacts a man's becoming truly masculine, giving of himself in love, assuming responsibility for others in love. All of these are tied together and all have had an impact 
on decreasing the formation of real men if a teenage girl allows a guy very easily to be able to take her into the bedroom she's hurting him incalculably and diminishing his capacity to real uh, to really learn how to love to love in all those little ways that men in former generations used to when they had to court a girl and work so hard to become real men to be able to gain her affection that seems like a lot of bad news these contemporary challenges they seem to be so strong but Frankly, there's a lot of good news out there today, and we need to finish on this good news. The above foray into the contemporary challenges to the formation of authentic masculinity in Christian men in our society is not the only factor, thanks be to God, in the cultural and ecclesial equation. There are also several signs of hope. During the past World Youth Day, in which Pope John Paul II played such a large role, I was able, in a speech, to focus on some of the aspects of the good news that could lead to renewal of true masculinity. The first great sign is that we're finally on to the problem. The fact that we've properly diagnosed the problem of the deficient masculine formation in our culture is a huge step forward. It allows us all to start working toward a solution. Moreover, recent organizations and movements like Promise Keepers of the Million Man March have been reaching out in a particular way to men to help them to live up to to their vocation, to be responsible lovers and giving of themselves to others. Another great source of good news is the writings of Pope John Paul II and the influence they're now starting to have from the bottom up, it seems, within the church as more and more young people catch on to these writings. They've given us a deep philosophical and theological foundation for man's authentic vocation. His catechesis on the theology of the body brings man's vocation to love back to Adam and then forward to the new Adam, Christ, the bridegroom of the church who showed us how to love because he loved his bride enough to lay down his life for her. It is a very solid, rich, and deep foundation to give orientation to the church's work in this entire field. His document, Redemptoris Custos, the custodian, the guardian of the Redeemer, focuses on the vocation of St. Joseph as this guardian and sends him forth as an example to all men. This really is a must-read. And the Pope's writings, many writings on the family, especially Familiaris Consortio, written in 1981 on the family, and his letter to families, written a few years later, give concrete direction to men in living out their vocation as responsible, loving husbands and fathers. But it's not just the writings of Pope John Paul II that give us great hope for a rebirth in authentic masculinity, but it's his personal example that puts all of what he's written into concrete body language, and this itself is very inspiring to men. Few would question the heroic and authentically masculine example of Karol Wojtyla. He learned how to be a man from his father, whom he would recall many years later he would see upon returning home from work on his knees on the hardwood floor praying the rosary. To the young Karol Wojtyla, St. Joseph had his father's face. The young Pope learned authentic responsibility throughout his young life. As a young man, meeting with the Rhapsodic Theater when being caught meant possible deportation to a concentration camp. He learned how to be responsible, but to to do the right thing despite fear. 
He also learned responsibility from learning what proper battles to fight during the Nazi occupation and the communist regime in Poland. His own example as Pope and his perseverance after the assassination attempt, to his bold confrontation of dictators in Poland and Cuba, to his stamina in keeping his 18-hour days over two and a half decades, are a tremendous example of responsible love. Even in Toronto, it was something that blew those in the media away when this old man with a terrible hip replacement with all types of other physical problems walked down the steps of the airplane. He didn't take what had been prepared for him, a certain escalator that would take him all the way down. But he showed what it means to be a real man, overcoming what doubtless was a lot of pain in order to show a real example of courage and inspire all of us to live our faith with the same courage, even when our culture says we don't have to. And most illuminatingly, Pope John Paul II's statement that he would never retire because Jesus never came down from his own cross shows us all what it means to follow the Lord all the way. Pope John Paul II will not forsake his own cross. And in so saying and doing, he shows that he's willing to continue not because of stubbornness, but because of love and responsibility for the mission entrusted to him by Almighty God. In conclusion, the recovery of authentic masculinity in our culture is crucial and urgent and must be accompanied by a genuine appreciation for authentic femininity, which we have not discussed here, but I hope there'll be a rebirth in this type of study because it goes together with perfect complementarity to what we've been discussing today. Secondly, since God created man in the image of God, male and female, and since the communion of persons and love between male and female is meant to be an image of the triune God, who is an eternal, and com- eternal communion of persons and love, for society and for persons to learn how to love, to become fully human and to become more and more like God, we must have real men and real women who know how to complement and love each other fully. When real men and real women learn to love each other fully, consistent with their original differentiation, an upward spiral of love will develop. Love will be shown, and the whole world will get a glimpse of God who is love. And how urgently our world needs to see him. Praise be Jesus Christ. And I'll be glad to take whatever questions you have. First question is, it seems our priests are less masculine today. Why is that? In response, I'd I'd say the first thing is, I think the analysis is true, that our priests do as a body seem to be less masculine today. But I think you could say that there are a lot of factors. First, there are a smaller number of priests overall. Secondly, some seminaries and vocation programs over the past couple decades, have been trying to root out those with strong personalities. 
the faculty members who are forming these guys and making recommendations to bishops on guys worthy to be ordained have looked at guys with strong personalities almost as if they'd be incapable of doing good pastor work because certain people in the parishes won't like people with strong personalities. I think that that's had an impact. Another thing we could add is that formation programs for priests have been less challenging. Think for the sake of keeping numbers up there. I've been convinced for a long time that if we want to attract a lot of vocations, but particularly real masculine vocations, the types of future heroes in the faith, priests like St. Joseph, like Jesus, like Peter and those other apostles capable of laying down their lives for you out of love, that we need to form vocation programs that are more like Green Beret training, stuff that really challenges them to be all that they can be as human beings, but particularly as human beings called to find in Jesus their true model and in Jesus' love our real call. I think we can also add that perhaps coeducational schools have influenced the equation, with more boys getting involved in serious relationships earlier, and especially in serious sexual relationships earlier, which not only deforms them as men, but can discourage heterosexual men from thinking seriously about vocations. Our over-psychologicization, if I can get that word out, of priestly training, in which the spiritual dimension has been underemphasized, has also had an impact. It leads to a lack of a sense of sin, and therefore a lack of the sense of the devil. And all of this leads, ultimately, to the fact that so many in the church don't think that there's even a war going on anymore. But there is a war between God and the devil. And the devil never sleeps trying to steal us. The first thing to recognize is that there is a battle, that there is an enemy, and that Christ calls us to put on his own armor, to take him on to ourself, and to go out and fight this battle, starting in our own hearts. The more we focus on this battle, the more we'll get authentic men who are priests, masculine men. Next question. What can we do with our sons, five and eight years old, to help them become more masculine? It's a good question. I'd first respond by saying how important it is for the father to do authentically masculine things with his sons. Things especially and just for the guys. That there's something distinct about what it means to be a man versus what it means to be a kid. I think that that's, it can be fishing with the father, it can be fixing the oil in a car, it can be playing sports with the father, but all of those things help the young child growing up, the young boy growing up, to take on a masculine identity. Women are also crucially important in affirming this masculine identity. Mothers should affirm their boys as boys and not just as kids, maybe even inspiring them to be real men growing up, teaching them about the real virtues of their father, teaching them about some of the differences between men and women so that they can grow into that understanding. As we talked a little bit about in the, uh, in the speech, real responsibility is crucial for the training of young boys that will teach them the consequences of irresponsibility. If he's irresponsible in those areas, there will be real consequences. Consequences 
that aren't life-threatening in terms of human life, but can be life-threatening to those plants or to those animals. That's one way you can, can cultivate in a young boy a real responsibility for things so that he later can apply the lessons he learns to caring for those who are given to him by the Lord if he ever becomes a priest in his parishioners or if he ever becomes a husband and a father and his wife and his kids. I'd also suggest soliciting young boys' input on things and involving them in the execution of a plan, especially in the physical execution of a plan. Young boys, it can be a great help when you allow them to start to use their body, to start to use their muscles, to start to use that gift of a physical relationship. Boys love to do things. Men need to do things to express their love. Give them real opportunities. Above all, I think it's crucial to teach young boys that authentic masculine maturity involves fulfilling responsibilities, being truly trustworthy, using their gifts, physical, intellectual, spiritual, to take care of others rather than to use them to take advantage of others. One of the great fears I see in our culture is that so many young boys seem to associate being a man with having sexual relations as quickly and as young as possible. That's actually not what masculine maturity is all about, but it's, it's the height of sort of immaturity, but a type of immaturity they're seeing modeled in so many people in a generation ahead of them. The role of adult men who show by example what it means to be a real man and of women who affirm and encourage true masculine responsibility cannot be overstated. Another question. How do we cultivate a masculine spirituality in boys and men? Is masculine spirituality different from female spirituality? Boy, these are good questions. I'd first say that while boys and girls could do the same activities, going to the same CCD class, going to mass, praying the rosary, I think they'll approach them differently in accord with their original differentiation. Men are often more moved by duty or by their honor to keep their end of the deal, the covenant with God. They often pray, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, because they feel they have to or should, more, because they, uh, more than because they happen to like to or not. Whether they like it or not oftentimes can be irrelevant to a man who really wants to do the duty of the Lord. That's one of the lessons that the young Caravoitee will learn from his dad, fulfilling one's responsibilities toward the Lord. I think with boys in particular, it's very important to show them the challenge of prayer. Like Jacob in the Old Testament who wrestled with God. Sometimes young boys want to wrestle with God. They want God to test them. They want God to challenge them because they want to pass that test. We need to challenge our young boys to pray. The example of masculine prayer can't be overstated either. As we've talked about a few times, the Pope's seeing his father pray. I can talk at length about seeing my own father pray. He's not what we'd consider a very spiritual man, somebody who loves the things of the church. But every day when I was a kid with my mother who loves those things, my dad was there faithfully fulfilling his duties to pray and teaching us to pray and making sure that we pray well, using his own masculine characteristics in doing so. That if we were goofing off or not paying attention, we'd get the finger pointed by my dad to let us know that first it was going to be eyes closed and hands folded, but next it would be on our knees, and afterward we might be praying with our body by corporal mortification afterward. But my dad taught us how to pray. 
And then lastly, I'd say that there's a masculine style of a friendship with Christ, which is different from a female style. Boys and girls form different types of friendship. Often our catechetical textbooks can focus too much on the feminine model, which is much more relational, more talkative, maybe more meditative with the Lord. Guys' friendships much more gravitate on doing things. That's why, for example, pilgrimages can be very helpful with boys. Taking them on a long pilgrimage so that they can pray by their body and have a sense of accomplishment. Or even altar serving can allow boys to grow in a relationship. I've got time for one more question. Okay, this is a question that comes up very often. Why can only men become priests? There are a lot of reasons that are given, most of them good, but I'd like to get right to the heart of it. Ultimately, as Christians, the bottom line is we believe Jesus Christ was the God-man and knew what he was doing. And Jesus ordained only men. Why Jesus did that, he didn't explicitly tell us. But we trust that he knew what he was doing. While saying that, not trying to put off debate, I think that we can look and see why that would be fitting. Jesus first was a man, and priests are ordained, as we believe, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And Jesus very, very strongly identified himself as the bridegroom of the church, the husband of the church, and only men can be husbands. Jesus' virginal sponsality as well, this is not quite the question that was asked, but I I think we can go beyond to a question that's often asked. Why priestly celibacy? Because somebody ordained in the person of Christ and ordained in the person of Jesus who was a virginal spouse, spouse of the church, but a chaste one, fully chaste and celibate, is, is today very relevant. Jesus, as we discussed with Joseph, showed that the total gift of self does not have to be genitally expressed, that real love, the love that will last forever in heaven, is this gift of self that does not express itself in genital bodily giving, but expresses itself clearly in the body. This is my body given for you. For priests to become truly and authentically masculine priests after the example and in the person of Christ, I think for him first to be male but also to be celibate is crucially relevant here. But back to the question about why men can only become priests— It goes to the fact that from the beginning of time in Adam and Eve, from the beginning of creation, there has been meaning to this original differentiation between man and woman. God didn't spell it all out. A lot of it's a mystery. But just as it's a mystery of why he made men and women equal in dignity but complementary, why, for example, only women are capable of having another life grow within them and give birth, that masculinity in Jesus itself is relevant, even if we don't understand all the reasons. The final point that I'd like to say there before we end is that the most important hierarchy of all is the hierarchy of holiness, at the top of which stands a woman, literally Jesus' mother, from whom all women can learn what it means to be feminine, and that would be the source of all that study. That the hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons, and lay people after is meant ultimately to bring us to seek holiness and to insert ourselves in that hierarchy of love, that hierarchy of holiness, where Mary stands at the top as the queen of angels and saints, next to her son, a true man, 
who teaches us what it means to be a man and calls us to that place. Thanks very much for your attention. God bless you all. You have been listening to Father Roger Landry here on St. Joseph Radio Presents. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone. Everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.